Hello, and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview that I conducted with an author who is brought to us via Zoom from Warwick's Books in La Jolla. Enjoy. Simon Stevenson is an author and screenwriter, and once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, he was a medical doctor. Originally from Edinburgh in Scotland, he currently resides in Los Angeles. He enjoys all kinds of books and most kinds of movies, but apparently not horror. I understand. I'm kind of with you on that one, by the way. Great. Thank and, you. Good. You might be cool. <laughs> totally. And loves just about everything that has four legs. Well, except those chairs in your dentist's office. I understand you, the waiting room. You don't like those chairs. Uh, any of the chairs. I mean, the waiting room, the real problem is the chair in the thing. But you're right. That probably doesn't have four legs, does it? That's probably mm. just more like on a, on a thing. I think it has like a, like a one, like one thing that goes yeah. up and down, like a... Like you'd lift that's a right, car. That's right. So, so in my bio, I made a terrible error. I, I think we're going to have to fix terrible. your bio. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the dentist, right? It's the dental yeah, thing that yeah. you have the problem with. All right. Exactly. It's a polite way of saying I'm terrified of my dentist. <laughs> <laughs> which leads to a question I'll ask later. Simon Stevenson has a spirit animal, which happens to be P22, a local... You say friendly, but I'm not sure I agree with that. Neighborhood mountain lion in Los Angeles. By the way, I'm a huge fan of the puma, and I track the P22 as well. Oh, so that's pretty wow. cool. Well, we better talk about that. Yeah. I, right? Yeah. <laughs> Stevenson's first book is a memoir, Let Not the Waves of the Sea. It's about the loss of his older brother, Dominic, in the Indian Ocean tsunami. Set My Heart to Five is his first novel. Here it is again, folks. This is a fantastic book. The story of a dentist, Android. I love that you chose for him to be a dentist when you don't like going to the dentist. So Jared is a dentist. He is a bot and he begins to experience feelings. The, the story unfolds in 2054 in a world where humans have managed to lock themselves out of the internet by forgetting the last names of their favorite teachers and their first pets. Havoc ensues. It's kind of a love letter to feelings, if you will, and to the movies many of us grew up on and the American West. So Simon Stevenson, thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and talk about this really wonderful book. I loved it. Oh. All right. My first question. Now, this is a really important question, and I, I need you to be honest with me. I promise I won't tell anyone. <laughs> Are you a robot? <laughs> um, it's a really good question. I'm, I've, I'm, I'm worried that I might be, like, like, because often sort of the question that I get in interviews is, is people say, you know, how did you, like, how, how, how did you imagine, you know, how awkward this robot would feel and how he could be sometimes so lonely and sometimes he could try and fun it, be funny, it could be totally backfire. And I was kind of have to say, well, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like a lot of that might be drawn from life, you know, you know, so, yeah. uh, so, so, so I'd love to think maybe we all have a bit of that, but it's possible I have a bit more than, than some people of the Android in me. <laughs> you did such a lovely job of bringing Jared to life and making him seem human, but just awkward enough. I think one of the things you did really well, and I know you must have done this on purpose, but I'll ask you is he, he didn't speak using contractions. He didn't say can't. He said, I cannot. Yeah. 
So the, the language was very precise and very specific, which I think lent to the bot part of Jared. Was that on purpose? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you, you you picked up on that. Yeah, I think um, so. So as you say, the book's all written in Jared's voice. He's 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 narrating the book, and one of his things in his programming is he's programmed to seem as as reassuringly human as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, we probably know as humans that you know a, an android pretending to be human. There's nothing reassuring about that. But right. that that that's his programming. And so you get this thing where he tries to say, you know, what he thinks is slang because he's heard people say, "Oh, I just can't, I can't," and you know, so so so. so but he hears, "I cannot." And so then, you know, he, he sort of enthusiastically exclaims, I cannot uh, quite and a lot he, sometimes. And he exclaims a lot. He uses, you know, ha! And he uses, you know, exclamation points a lot and excellent, excellent language. He's very precise. But he's also incredibly, like, loving and kind and clever and funny. And, you know, he's very human in, in the way he approaches and the way he looks at things. And I think it kind of shines a light on, you know, who we are as humans. And I think it allowed you to kind of make fun of us, to make fun of humans and all the silly things we do, the ridiculousness. Um, I really appreciated that. This must have been a really fun book to write. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think like all of us, you know, I probably spend a lot of time wondering about some of the weird things that we do as humans. And, you know, I don't mean things that other people do. I mean, things that I do as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I think sort of when you, you know, sometimes when you, when you stop and think about like, well, well, why, why are we doing this? Right. You know, this, 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 this odd activity or, or whatever it is we're doing for recreation that week. Um, you know, so, so, so yeah, the chance to just kind of turn the camera around and say, well, if, you know, I always loved Seinfeld has this little joke about like, if, uh, you know, if an alien comes to earth and sees a, uh, you know, a person walking a dog, but what they'll see is one species, you, you know, basically leading another. Yeah. Leading another. And then the other <laughs> one picking up the poop of the other one. They'll be like, well, this species is, is the overlord and let's, uh, Clearly. You know, let's, let's make our peace with them. And, and I think, you know, that's quite a fun perspective to take of just kind of looking at things and saying, well, what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many times where I stopped and I had to like reread it and I'm like, yeah, why do we do that? You know, I laughed out loud so many times in this book. Um, One of my, one of my favorite pieces was when you're talking about Midwesterners. In fact, let me see if I can find it. Oh, it's somewhere in my notes. You talk about the, how the, the politeness. Yes, you, he describes human interaction as a never-ending arms race of politeness. And I completely laughed out loud. My, my husband's from Iowa. I have so many friends from the Midwest. I'm like, that is so true. This, this being polite and how Jared was programmed to be polite, but he understands the, the reasons and why it's kind of silly like we're not honest necessarily we use this politeness to sort of you know stumble through our relationships and it is just like an arms race in many ways right yeah yeah the, 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 the people are always trying to um try, try, trying to out polite each other um totally uh, yeah <laughs> there's a great episode of the office i think where this happens where, where the characters dwight and andy have a whole day uh, is it is dwight and andy? It's, it's uh yeah 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 dwight and andy and and, and they have this whole day of you know, trying to be trying to be more polite than one another. I'm sure that was probably in the back of my head at some point when I was when I was thinking about the oddity of politeness. 
I felt like, you know, you, you paid homage to so many really wonderful movies and books and, you know, things in, you know, that we've all experienced that, and that's part of what made this book so great. I want to talk a little bit about this mystopia. It's set in 2054. And this, can you tell us about the world building? I know you have a slideshow for us. So maybe this is a good time to kind of to take us to 2054 and, and the yeah. place. Sure, sure. I, I, right. I, I will do that. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 yeah. So, um, uh, absolutely. The the idea of twenty fifty four. So, um, my sort of conception of the future, I think, is um, it's probably a bit more hopeful than some of the conceptions out there. So, you, you know that, like, <laughs> thank so, you so for I that. Love reading, yeah, well, because I love reading the dystopias, you know, and I love say, you know, reading the Hunger Games, and then you know when you put it down and you realize that you're not actually going to be made to fight the children from the other districts for your survival. It was just a book you were reading. Like, like that's a lovely sense of relief when you put that book down. But equally, I kind of feel that, um, you know, there's a lot of bleak stuff, you know, in, in the literature around dystopias. And, you know, obviously we have a huge amount of issues in our world right now. And um, uh, I think I didn't want to write a dystopia and I didn't really want to, you know, I, I probably don't want to read one right now in truth. And so um, I, uh, I, I'm not. I'm calling it not a dystopia. I'm calling it a mystopia. And the idea is that everything's just kind of missed its mark and it's gone wrong in a like like like, like a really human way. And we have this phrase in Britain, which is that um, if things go wrong, it's more likely to be cock up rather than conspiracy. Um, mm. And with Boris Johnson as our prime minister, it's it's absolutely true that you know people people are always speculating that he's you know running these Machiavellian schemes around Brexit and stuff. But it's not. It's just uh, you know, it's it's just messing up and not paying attention at, at, at the crucial points. I think so. Um, so the idea is, is, is that in twenty fifty four, there's no sort of you know terrible sinister you know government society. There's just humans have just messed up in the way that we always do. So I think as you mentioned, Elon Musk has incinerated the moon. Humans have locked themselves out of the internet. Um, you know, but we're still you know we're still going on. And um, uh, one of the we great find things, a way. <laughs> exactly, life life finds a way, or, or humans mm -hmm. find a way. Um, and so one of the things about 2054, and and I, I like I genuinely don't think that this is actually unlikely. Is I think we will have androids. And uh, I wasn't a. I have to confess, I wasn't like a. a I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't a huge science fiction person before this. So I had to educate myself a bit to find out that an android specifically is a robot who looks human. Hmm. So, 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 so an android is, 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 is a robot who can pass for human. And I think what that means is that when we think of androids, we think they're going to look like this. Uh, let's see this. So, so we think they're going to look like this. I, you know, so, so you wouldn't have any trouble with seeing that android. You, you would know he was an android straight away. Um, I think, unfortunately, they're going to look a lot more like this. Um, which, of course, <laughs> is not to say that they're going to be like, a, you know, they're all going to be clones of me. I just mean that, you know, they're going to look average and ordinary. And if you see them in the street, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know. And, you know, that being so, I think they will live in, you know, very ordinary places like, like this place here, which is... Um, uh, this is Ypsilanti in Michigan, which is uh, where, where Jared, the, the narrator of, of my book, lives. And so, and so if you imagine that you're just, you know, in this very ordinary Midwestern town in year 2054, the cars will probably look a bit different, but apart from that, probably quite similar. Um, and so I'm just going to read um, 
how Jared introduces himself in the book. Um, he says, Hi, my name is Jared. I am sincerely pleased to meet you. Also, I am a bot. Unless you have been living under a rock in North Korea or New Zealand, ha, you of course know what a bot is. Nonetheless, I am programmed to relay the following dialogue to each new human I encounter. Please do not be fooled by my human-like appearance. I am a mere bot. I do not have feelings or anything else that might be misconstrued as a soul. Instead, I've been programmed to a high level of proficiency of dentist in dentistry. Should you have any concerns, please immediately report me to the Bureau of Robotics. But humans rarely find this information calming. Instead, they see a fellow human standing in front of them claiming that he is not a human. This bamboozles them. It often bamboozles them so profoundly that they exclaim, but you look so human. I then patient, patiently explain to them what they anywhere already know, that my body looks human because it is indeed a human body. It is engineered from DNA and constructed of cells the exact same way their own body is. It can be injured or killed in all the same comically outlandish ways any other human body can. Yet I am definitely not human because the precious thing that sets humans apart is their feelings. And as a bot, I'm specifically designed and programmed to be incapable of feelings. I can no more feel than a toaster. Ha! BTW. That is a hilarious joke because the programming language I run on was in fact first developed many years ago for use in the domestic toaster. And so um, I guess what you might have uh, mm -hmm. uh, pick, picked up in that, in that reading is, is a couple of, you know, and one is, is that Jared's a dentist. I think, I think we'd mentioned that. So, 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 he, so he, he's, a, he's an Android dentist. Um, and the reason that Jared's a dentist is because when we have Androids, we're going to make them do the jobs that we don't want to do. And, and top of that list for me is, is, is being a dentist. It's probably the job I would least like to do. Um, but the other, the flip side of it is that they're going to be brilliant dentists because they don't have any feelings. So, uh, you know, a human dentist can be kind of distracted if you complain too much. You know, if you're, you know, he's trying to take your wisdom tooth out and you keep complaining, it hurts. At some point, he's going to stop and tell you to come back next week. But the Android dentist is not going to care. He's just going to get that, get that, get that tooth out. So, 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 so that, that's one advantage they have. Um, but the other thing about Androids is they're going to be better than us at everything, right? Like, 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 like I think they will genuinely, you know, they'll be better at maths, at science, at memory, at language. And it doesn't leave us humans much. And I think the thing it leaves us, the only sort of theoretical advantage we have over them is feelings and emotions. So we're therefore going to be very protective of our feelings and emotions because they're the things that make us humans special. And uh, what that means is that if any android shows any hint of feeling any emotion, or um, he's going to be in trouble and he's going to be either wiped or incinerated. And the, the, the organization that does that is a, an organization called the Bureau of Robotics. And my model for that was kind of the DMV. So slow and bureaucratic and clunking, but yet they will get you in the end. So they're not without teeth. They just, you know, they're slightly comical, but you know, they're, they're a real threat. So, and this is a real problem for Jared because he, he shares a building with, with a human doctor. Doctors are still humans because emotions and feelings. Um, and so, uh, one thing leads to another and the doctor begins to suspect that Jared might be depressed. And so Jared says, well, that's ridiculous. I can't be because, uh, you know, I don't have feelings. 
Um, and so the doctor says, but, but I think you do. And so the doctor's very clever and he suggests to Jared that they do an experiment. And because Jared's an android, he's going to love experiments. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they love. They, and, and again, this is maybe one of those bits we're talking about where it's a bit too close to me because I love experiments. I'm a science person at heart. So, um, so they agree on this experiment. Um, and the experiment that they agree is that Jared's going to go and see a movie because that's where humans, that's where humans often, often feel things. And so um, one thing just to mention about 2054 is there's really going to be two kinds of movies. There's going to be, you know, the big blockbusters that play at the, uh, what, what, you, what are currently called the multiplexes, but by then will be called the megaplexes. And, you know, they're going to show these, you know, just giant Marvel extravaganzas that are six hours long and the bad guys are always killer robots. Um, and so Jared says, look, I, I don't, I don't want to see one of those because, you know, that's not, that's not fun for me. And the doctor says, no, there is this other kind of movie that still plays at, you know, old repertory cinemas. And the movies they play there are the movies that have, have survived humans locking themselves out of the internet and losing all the culture that was stored digitally. So what that means is the movies that are going to be left behind are the things that were stored on film and particularly the things that they had a lot of prints of. Um, so uh, the um, uh, today, if you go see a house film, you might want to see some obscure French documentary, and you'll come back and tell all your friends how how clever you are because you saw an obscure four-hour-long French documentary in black and white. <laughs> and you know, in 2054, you'll do the same thing, but you'll have seen Titanic. You know, and you'll come back and tell all your friends you saw the sophisticated film from the 90s that you know they wouldn't understand, but it, it's a great piece of art. Um, so, so Jared goes to see a movie, and uh, if you could, if you can bear with me, I'll, I'll try, try and make make this work with the the technology where what um, will try and just give us a little bit experience of um, uh, Jared. He'll, he'll go to a theater that looks um, that looks like this. So, um, like like an old, you know, tumble down repertory theater. And uh, what I'll do, I'll just play a tiny bit of the movie he sees, and then and then I'll read his reaction. say about a 25-year-old girl who died? That she was beautiful and brilliant? That she loved Mozart and Bach? <laughs> the Beatles? And me? When the house lights came up, I discovered that my shirt was soaking wet. This was a mystery. After all, I had not purchased a soda, soda because there were calorific sugar water. I could see no evidence of a leak coming from the ceiling. Bots can produce tears only in response to a physical insult, such as a flying fragment of wisdom tooth. It took me some time to deduce that the liquid must have been my own tears. Even though nobody in the auditorium had been drilling teeth, every other possibility had been eliminated. The only logical conclusion was therefore that the Grand Theatre must recently have been cleaned with a powerful solvent that had irritated my eyes. 
I estimated the volume of my tears to be approximately 26 milliliters. It must have been a powerful solvent indeed. On the automatic bus back home, I noticed some words stuck at the forefront of my word cloud. What can you say about a 25-year-old girl who died? That she was beautiful and brilliant? That she loved Mozart and Bach and the Beatles? And me? The character called Oliver had spoken these words right at the start of the movie. At the time, it had seemed absurd. How could there be nothing else to say about a human who had lived for only a quarter of a century and then died? There had to be more. What was her name? Where had she lived? How had she fared in the great human zero-sum game? Why had she died so young? Had she been killed by the most likely culprit, an automobile? And yet, as I rode the automatic bus home that night, I found that I entirely agreed with Oliver. There was nothing more to say. In a hundred minutes, the old movie has said everything could possibly be said about an entire human lifetime. Nonetheless, I could not st stop thinking about Oliver and Jenny all the way back to Ypsilanti. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so that's, that's Jared's first trip to the cinema and that kind of provoked some, um, some, some, some feelings in him. Uh, he goes back to the doctor and uh, the doctor explains that it was a blind experiment that he hadn't told Jared the movie was a tearjerker and Jared had really been crying. So this, this kind of opens the door to, um, to Jared beginning to feel. Um, the doctor then gives him something that looks like this, which uh, I know from my past life as a, as a children's doctor where I work sometimes with um, kids with Asperger's syndrome and autism. It's, a, it's called a feelings wheel. And the idea is that if, if you're having trouble deciphering your emotions, you, you can pick out what you're feeling and of course Jared you know loves this and has a great time um, uh, investigating his feelings but of course I mentioned uh, about this terrible organization called the Bureau of Robotics and they get you know wind of this that Jared is is seeing movies and feeling things so they come after him and uh, without giving too much away Jared decides that the way the way to solve all this is to write a movie of his own um, and he sets out on this adventure and unfortunately it's not too long before he realizes that the algorithm for making a movie in Hollywood looks a bit like this. Um, oops. What's happened there? Yeah, it looks, looks like this. Um, and this, this is kind of based on my own personal experience of having been working out here as a screenwriter for seven or seven or eight years that um, uh, you can see, I think that this algorithm is, is, uh, if you're the writer, it's fairly flawed because whatever decision anyone makes, it always involves replacing the writer. Um, <laughs> and and so, so that's sort of, uh, that's one of the challenges that, that, that Jared encounters on his, on his way. I wondered, you know, when I was reading that, I know that you're a screenplay writer and this book reads yeah. partially like a novel and partially like a screenplay. So you really brought your experience as a screenplay writer to the book. Did you intend it to be a novel at first or did you ever consider it as a screenplay? Uh, yeah. How was yeah, that process? It, that, 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 that's a really good question. And I think if I was, if I was a smarter human, I, I would have worked that out earlier on that like uh, it would be, you know, to my advantage to write a novel that might end up being a film someday. Um, I can genuinely say that wasn't the plan at all. Like I, so, so as you mentioned, I published this memoir way back in 2011. And when I finished that, I sat down to write a novel because 
you know, my understanding was that writers wrote novels. That was what we were supposed to do. And now I published a memoir. Well, and I was a big, important writer. And therefore, I was going to write a novel. And I couldn't do it. I just, you know, I tried several times and it failed. So the screenwriting was, you know, a very fortunate diversion. I was I was like, lucky enough to take. But, you know, through all those years, I was always trying to write the novel. And how ironic, of course, that the novel ended up being about screenwriting and you know may someday if we're lucky end up being a movie of its own so um so yeah no no i wasn't i wasn't smart enough to uh um to to to, to have conceived that plan because i do hear it sometimes i've heard about i can't remember what they are off the top of my head but i've definitely heard of a couple of surprising books that started out as screenplays that no one wanted and then they turned into books and then everyone wanted mm. them and then they became uh they became screenplays that everyone wanted so uh yeah In- in Set My Heart to Five, Jared decides that he wants to move to Los Angeles and become a screenplay writer. Yeah. And I wonder how much of his story follows your story in terms of learning to be a screenplay writer and you know, learning how to write a novel and then using both. I mean, he's literally told in the book, Jared is told, well, do use both. Write it yeah. as a screenplay and write it as a novel. So I wonder how much of the experience literally was your experience and I mean, you used to be a medical doctor. So kind yeah. of tell us how this came to be that you went from sure. medicine to being a writer. Sure, sure. So um, I, I mean, I always wrote along the way. And uh, I think what one thing that's very different in the UK is um, medicine is you, you go to medical school as your undergraduate degree. So, 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 it's, so, so you embark on that career when you're 17 or 18 years old in Scotland, which means that you choose that career when you're 15 or 16 years old, which wow. I think if you're, if, yeah, if you're a smart, precocious child who knows what the world is, it's probably sensible to make that decision at that point. If you're me and the first series of ER starts just at the wrong time on television, <laughs> you say, oh, I'm going to, I'll do that. that. That's what I'll do. Um, right. And uh, so, so, because even when I was going to university, it was like, am I going to do medicine or English, which is obviously quite an unusual I guess it's less unusual these days, but at the time it was quite an unusual um, split. So um, I, I went to medical school. I worked as a doctor. I always wrote along the way. And actually it was in medical school was when I started writing properly. And like I would always enter every competition I could see. I was quite competitive like that. But it was also I just like I felt like that other bit of my brain needed to be exercised, you know, the creative bit a bit. And I think that's quite common. There's lots of doctors that have sidelines in, 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 in sort of creative pursuits. Yeah. So um and when I was 24, 25, you know, I'd only been working as a doctor and I took, um, I took six months out to write my great literary book of short stories because what the world needed from me was a great literary book of short stories when I was 24, 25. And of course, thankfully, they didn't. None of them, you know, it didn't happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Probably. Um, right. so, uh, um, so that was a salutary lesson. But one of them got made into a... Um, a short film and it kind of did, did okay and from the back of that I got some work writing television so um and it wasn't the glory days of British television and it wasn't the glory days of my writing but you know it was it was a living and I was writing and you know earning money to by writing which was such a thrill um and then you know my life changed I lost my brother I, you mentioned it in this army mm. in Thailand mm-hmm. in 2004 and so I I went back to medicine at that point and I wrote a, I wrote a memoir, the memoir about him, losing him, and, and I kind of wrote it in, in the downtime from, you know, just the evenings and weekends. I mean, mainly I worked in the hospital at the evenings and weekends, so it's so the downtime in sure. the day and the, um, uh, the, the daytimes. And so um, 
I guess that one, you know, it came out and, and yeah, I thought I was going to write this big, you know, this, this great novel and it just, it just didn't happen. I couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. Um, but what I did write was, um, for that time I was, I was, I was a children's doctor and uh, I wrote a screenplay about a, a depressed children's doctor who hated his job and definitely needed a change. And I don't know where that idea popped into my head. It just came like, like the purest of creative magic. Um, and, uh, and that weirdly opened up all these doors out here. Like, like, and suddenly I went from, you know, I couldn't really get arrested in London. And then, you know, I came out here for a few meetings and kind of, you know, overnight, like I had a, you know, a new career. I mean, I should stress it's never happened like that since, you know, I've written a lot of screenplays since. And, and that one seemed to have particularly got everyone excited in a way that I haven't necessarily managed to manage to recapture um, that, that, that buzz. So, um, but, but yeah, it, it led to like, like a fairly consistent, um, uh, screen, screenwriting work and so uh, um, yeah kept me busy well I wonder what do you enjoy writing more novels or screenplays yeah it, it's a really good question I think they're they're pretty different and, and I think they're not different in terms of because obviously you know they're laid out differently on the page but you know that whole process is you know you're still basically just sitting by yourself in a room um, mm-hmm. and I think that I think they have different things so you know what I love about screenwriting is is genuinely is the the collaboration and you, you, mm. you know if you if, if you get to work with people who are real collaborators it's such a dream um uh you know unfortunately in in Hollywood I showed that algorithm of the screenwriter and and it's not you know so, so, so it doesn't necessarily always go smoothly you don't necessarily get to work with people who are who who, who are necessarily collaborators every, every time um sure uh but it just i mean it's it's much more i mean social is the wrong word but it's just i guess it's less lonely like mm. you know because you're going to meetings and you're talking to people and people are reading things and giving you feedback and you know all of that stuff so so, so that bit i love of it um, but then writing the book has been, you know, it's it's really nice because you have less kind of less people telling you what to do. You you, you know, if, yeah. if you work on a big movie, like inevitably, you know, there's a lot at stake. So of course, you know, the people that are putting up the money are going to have strong opinions about everything. And um, so 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 yeah, I think I mean I think the dream might be to to do both. Like 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 what's happened with this one is you know, we were lucky enough, I was lucky enough that it got, it got option for potentially being a film. And I've been doing the screenplay of that. And, and it's been this wonderful experience where because the book is already written, like I'm, I'm sort of way less protective of it than, than, than I might be of, 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 for instance, the script that I've just written myself. You, yeah. you know, because when you yeah. write this script, you're like, oh, well, this, you know, if you change the whole thing, then this will no, will no longer exist. No one will know. Uh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. No one will ever know. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, the, I, I think, I think they both have their, they both have their benefits and their challenges. And, 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 you know, one, I guess one simple thing is, you know, on a purely practical level, you, you know, a, a screenplay tends to run like a movie screenplay, 15,000 words, 20,000 words, if you're feeling verbose. Oh, um, wow. My novel is 95,000 words. So yeah. just in terms of like the commitment and, 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 and the unwieldiness of like, you, you know, you can do a pass on your screenplay when you, once you've written it in, in a day or two, um, uh, you know, but, you know, every time you dive into the manuscript of your, of your novel or your memoir, you know, it's a, it's a month long undertaking. 
Yeah. You know, in, in the book, in Set My Heart to Five, there's a point where I think Jared and doctor, the doctor, his doctor friend, are watching the Oscars, I think. And this man, or maybe it was a woman, goes on stage to accept the award and no one claps. And Jared's like, wait a minute, what, why is no one clapping? And the doctor says, oh, that's just the screenwriter. No one cares about the screenwriter. You know, they care about the director and they care about the actors, right? And I thought, you know, this... Here you are in this situation where you've been a screenwriter, and it's true. Yeah. You never hear about the screenwriter. You hear about the directors. So now you, it's like you get to have a little bit of glory in being an author uh, in terms of, you know, you're it. You know, you're the mastermind, the man behind the book. Um, it's, it's all you. So has that been kind of fun? I mean, it's been out since, mm-hmm. I think, September 1st. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean it's really nice. I think... Um, uh, like, like, it's interesting because I think that, that screenwriting hierarchy thing, it's particularly acute in film. So, so, so what they mm-hmm. classically say is they say film is a, a, a director's medium and television is a screenwriter's medium. So, so, mm. so, so I think you do sometimes, you know, because you read about showrunners and you hear about showrunners and, and they're normally the head writers. Um, for whatever reason, mainly because I'm an idiot, I chose to go down a film route. So, <laughs> you know, I, th- I think my TV colleagues have, have, have a better time. Um, uh, but, but, but all that said, I mean, y- you know, great directors, you know, they have a skill set that I don't have and, and, you know, absolutely like, you know, so much respect for the work they do. And I think, you know, there, there, there's a lot of people that, you know, it's absolutely right that, you know, they have that level of say. And, you know, my, you know, if I have a qualm with it, I think that sometimes in, Sometimes in the film industry, we we lose sight of the the best things tend to be collaborations. You know, mm. we're very keen to label everyone a genius, and <laughs> and I think there are those individuals out there, but I think there's there's less of them than maybe we than maybe we think. So 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 yeah, having um uh like like having my broke out and you know getting to talk about yeah, like like it's a re- it's a real privilege um uh, because you know and you know also just simply for it to have been published so you know like the movies they say you know the average time a movie takes to get made is seven years um you know wow. lots of them like like famously like dallas buyers club if you remember that movie from a few years ago big hit mm-hmm. everyone loves it um that was in development for like 25 years wow you wow, know, and and and, and yeah. I think the, the, the I've read that like the script wasn't vastly different from the one they started with. You know, so imagine writing something great twenty five years ago and having to wait, you know, all that time for the for, for the world to catch up. So, yeah. um, I think you know, and I and I'm sure so many writers will, will hear this and laugh, but like from my perspective with film, where everything takes so long, there's genuinely kind of an immediacy in publishing a book because it only takes two or three years. Um, uh, So so, yeah, that's been very pleasant. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, as a writer, we always feel like, gosh, it takes forever for it to finally come out. I would like you to read another passage, if you don't mind. It's on, it's on page 48. Start at the second paragraph and read to the bottom. You, your reading of Jared is so beautiful, and I love this scene. Great, great. Okay, so here we go. Automobiles, which were also known as motor cars, were the precursor to our driverless Ubers of today. They were made of steel, weighed up to several tons, and were powered by highly combustible fuel sources. After a few hours of basic construction, 
humans were legally permitted to self-pilot these vehicles at speeds of up to 70 miles an hour. Can you guess what happened? Of course you can. The era of the motor car was an era of motor carnage. Over a million humans were killed globally by automobiles every year. A million, every year. And how did humans respond to this self-inflicted genocide? By building ever more automobiles. They could go ever faster and carry ever larger quantities of highly combustible <laughs> fuel. Such bold counter-tuition and relentless determination to withstand all logic and reason truly make the automobile the apothesis, the apothesis of the great human century. Humans, I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I read that to my husband because I was like, look, what is wrong with us? But you know what, you know what I really love is there are, uh, there are Ubers, driverless Ubers. And in New York, they're all painted yellow for nostalgic reasons. And they're programmed to honk often. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. Anyone who's been to New York is like, of course, you know, like the nostalgia that you lend to this book is really fun. Um, there's so many scenes like that that made me laugh out loud. And it's, it was a, a really fun read. And, you know, it's, I was surprised that it's 95,000 words because I read it fairly quickly. You know, um, it, it it's definitely a page turner. It's got action. I mean, Jared is on a mission to save himself. He's discovering himself. He's like this, this very naive, innocent creature who is viewing this ridiculous world and all these ridiculous things that we do as humans, but yet it's a love letter to feelings and to humankind in general. And I can't recommend it enough. It's really lovely. Oh, thank you. I want to ask you one more question because I know we're coming cool. to an end. So in the book, um, there is a scene where Dr. Glundenstein is talking with, with Jared, our character, who is still a dentist at the time, and he loves to drink Japanese whiskey, but he calls it scotch. And Jared is bamboozled, which is one of my favorite words in the book, because he inexplicably refers to Japanese witch whiskey as scotch, which it is not. Scotch is from Scotland. And now that I know that you're from Scotland, this makes a lot of sure. sense. Yeah. <laughs> but here's my question. Do you drink Japanese whiskey? Um, so, so I mean, I mean, I do if, if it's what's around. And, uh, um, <laughs> you, you know, I think it's, it's famously delicious. And I think actually... Um, I mean, I think like the last few years, it actually tends to win the awards, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so like, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the Oscars of the whiskey world are, um, I, I think Japan is, J J J J Japan is winning them. So yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah, you know. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny with with the word Scotch, though, because we don't necessarily. I mean, I mean, we we call the drink um, whiskey, scotch. right? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 but we we sort of tolerate the word Scotch for it. But sometimes this thing happens, and and one of my um, one of my friends actually just just uh, asked me something about being Scotch the other day, and 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 we get we get very uh, I don't know what the word is. We get very irritable. Something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Our national, our national characters, we're, we're kind of known for, not necessarily known for our patience. Um, I think it was J.M. Barry said that, you know, it's very hard to tell the difference between, uh, it, it's never hard to tell the difference between uh, a ray of light and a Scotsman with a grudge. Um, and, and, and so, uh, so, 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 yeah, we don't like, we don't like Scotch as a, as a designation of, of, of our national 
of, of who we are, but, but, but we'll, we'll drink any kind of it and we'll call it. But you're okay with the drink being called scotch? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, my favorite Japanese whiskey is Yamazaki which used to be really ah. inexpensive and it's gotten quite expensive because everyone's discovered how good it is. It's a single one of the awards. And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, well, so how, how, did, how did you find your way to it? You, you just, it was, um, my husband's. Oh, really? So I've, I'm a hillbilly at, by, you know, breeding, I should say my daddy's from uh-huh. Oklahoma. And so, you know, we, I grew up drinking more whiskey, kind of the yucky sure. ones, to be honest with you. Yeah. And my husband is a scotch drinker. So when I met him, he was all about the Oban and the Lagavulin's. Good, good, good and pronunciation. Okay. Cause a lot of people will pronounce, pronounce, pronounce that Oban, but you, you, you hear it perfectly there. I'm, I'm oh, very well, impressed. Thank you. So I've really come to love scotch and Lagavulin is my absolute favorite, but I love Hibiki. I love Yamazaki and the smokiness of it is wonderful. So I've come around because of my husband. It's taken a couple of years. That's completely (laughs) fair. I think, you know, there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of people in the world and I think we should all be drinking whiskey from everywhere. You know, why not? So I would like you and I to go to a, a Gillian Welch concert and have a, a glass of um, Yamazaki or our Lagavulin at some point sounds, when all of this di- social distancing is over. <laughs> Julie, that, that you want to come? And she, I'm coming too. <laughs> the, 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 this sounds fantastic. She can play some of her, um, you know, her dust bowl ballads that she has in, in, in the back right. catalog there, and we'll get some right. of the some of the old music. Wonderful. There's my there's my hillbilly, you know, background. Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I love this book, folks. Set My Heart to Five. Get it at Warwick's. Wonderful book. Thank you so much, Great. Simon. Well, well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and, and thank you to Warwick for, for having us. It's been wonderful. Absolutely. So we did put out onto Facebook that if anybody had a question, that we'd oh, bring cool. it in. And so Tracy Thompson did have a question for you. Oh, huh. So, Yay. yeah. So she was, oh, sorry, Tracy. If you're watching this, you're getting your question answered. Um, so she said, oh, boo, because of the technical issues. But she said he, she'd like to ask what books, what books shaped Simon as a writer? Mm, wonderful. It, it, it's a really great question. Um, uh, I... Um, it's funny. So, so, so one one of the reviews um, for this book mentioned um, uh, Terry Pratchett, and I I adored. I, I had this phase, you know, in you know between the ages of maybe like ten and fourteen or fifteen, where, where I just he, he wrote an awful lot, and I read all of it. And I can remember like you know queuing up at at the bookstore um, for. Um, you know, on the first day of publication. And, uh, um, but I, I really sort of, I think then, you, you know, you get into your teens and I got distracted by the beat generation and that took me on this whole other, you know, long and meandering path. And, and I probably, I genuinely, I don't think I've, you know, a terrible submission, but I don't think I've read Terry Pratchett since then. And, and then mm. another review mentioned him as well. And I thought that's really interesting that, you know, those, those formative things that, that, you know, you read at that age, um, come come back to you twenty years later. So, 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 I need to go back and reread it all. But, but it sounds like I think for this particular book, it feels like Terry Pratchett might be the might be the key influence. That's Absolutely. Awesome. It, have you been reading a lot during the shutdown, or are you like a lot of people? A lot of people had a lot hard time concentrating at first. But um, um, yeah, yeah, a, a, a bit of both. Um, 
Uh, I've been reading um, a, a, a few different things, actually. I've, I've been reading this one uh, um, by Nancy Pearl, The, 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 the Writer's oh. Library, which, which uh, I'm sure you guys haven't worked to come out and um, that's been really fun because I think in this moment when yeah some of our attention spans aren't sort of uh, you know the thought of diving into a 600 page novel is, is sometimes tricky and, and this one is great because it's she went around the country you guys probably know who Nancy Pearl is she's on NPR and all that stuff and um, uh, she went around the country interviewing uh, different writers to find out actually the question that we were just asked the books that shaped them so mm. it's a re- and it's a really fascinating insight into um, uh, you, you, you know, Jennifer, I'm, I'm sure you can re- relate to this. Um, sort of, it's it's always really interesting just finding out other people's craft and and, and like how they do it and what their habits are and yeah. Um, uh, so, 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 so that's been something I've really been enjoying lately. Yeah. And didn't she interview you? Uh, she did. Yeah. 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 I tried to yeah. find it, but it didn't seem to be live. It was a it was a live event, but it wasn't recorded. It didn't seem. Uh, um, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, mm, I would. I would uh, like to see that interview, but that's yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's that is one of those things that it's it's the process. People are fascinated by the process. Mm-hmm. It's you know that's mm-hmm. one of the questions that usually always comes up. Like, are you a plotter? Are you you know what do you do? So I'll ask you know, are do you write every day? Do you get up in there or is it, do you just write when it when you have like the inspiration? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I, um, I, I, yeah, I, I write every day, and I start. You know, it's always, it's the way I start the day, like, 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 because I feel like if I don't, then I just get lost in emails and 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 and, yeah. and, and whatever else. So, so, so I start the day with it, and I try and try and keep keep going for as long as I can until you you know you end up having to go to to the DMV or whatever <laughs> terrible <laughs> or thing the dentist <laughs> right yeah, or the dentist exactly <laughs> yeah yeah my two favorite places yeah <laughs> and one final question the title was yes. it was that a working title was it always the title what what uh, tell us about the yeah, title yeah 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 it's, it's, it's a great question so um the uh work work just mentioned that so, so the title set my heart to five comes from um jared is an android and his so he runs on an operating system like most computers and i learned fairly on in the process that this is true that the code this sort of code for computers tends to be cut and pasted between things so like the code in your dvd player probably is you know adapted from the one that's in your car you know it, it makes sense and so um jared again trying to be we, we spoke, spoke about him trying to be reassuringly human and he's learned somewhere along the way that humans like to talk about their ancestors or their grandparents and so he's always talking about his noble ancestor the toaster because his code was originated for domestic appliances so um and for a long time the title of the group was set my heart to 10 and then i realized that my toaster only went up to five and i did a bit of investigation <laughs> and i discovered that this was you know fairly the, the three toasters i had access to at that, that time they all only went up to five so i decided that jared's way of expressing maximum enthusiasm uh was going to be by saying you know said it's five and of course he's developing feelings so set my heart to five i've subsequently f- found out that this toaster's going to five is a slightly soft rule it seems like the majority of them go to five but i've encountered people have been sending me my toaster goes up <laughs> to six or my toaster goes up to seven someone sent me a toaster that went to three and i just had nothing to say to that I was, no know, of that. course yeah <laughs> so i mean i don't even know that technically a toaster only goes up to three um so uh um, does it so, even get so, 
like exactly yeah um <laughs> so um so yeah that's where that that's where that's where the title comes from and, and as um as jennifer was kindly holding up we we have a cover that you know it had that was a challenge because of course the challenge was this reef was basically a toaster but make it futuristic um which is which is a tough sell i think you know yeah yeah no, i think they did a great job the cover is really good i think they did a great job well this has been a great conversation i so appreciate you spending some time with us simon i know no, during the both. shutdown and the co- this to release a book during covid I just, it's got to be so hard for everybody. So um, mm-hmm. we're trying to, to champion as many of those voices out there as we can. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for the support. And, you know, I'm, I'm not too far away. So I'm, so I'm looking forward to, to getting, da- getting down there before too long. And uh, yes, I would say hello. And when we awesome. can gather with more than 10 people, you come down and we'll all go out and we'll all have that whiskey. Oh, even <laughs> better. Or scotch. Wonderful. Or scotch. Wonderful. Or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're going to say goodnight to everybody. And really? again, the book is available at Warwick's, but, you know, wherever you buy a book, buy the author's books. It's important. Absolutely. So, so thank you, Simon. Thank you, Jennifer. Right. Thank, thank you. you.